0: Our sermon text this morning is uh, really straddles uh, both Matthew 19 and Matthew uh, 20. We're going to start in the middle of a conversation in uh, chapter 19 that we've already looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago. And uh, if you're looking for the text in your pew Bible, it's on pages 825 and 826. So the, the reason we're straddling these two chapters is because what Jesus does in chapter 20 is directly connected uh, to what he uh, has, the exchange that he has with his disciples in chapter 19, that we're stepping into the middle of. So, hear the word of God. We're just going to start at verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day and the mother of the sons of zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him she asked him for something and he said to her what do you want she said to him say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom jesus answered you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that i am to drink They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, "'Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David!' The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, our prayer is the same that these two blind men uh, asked of you, that you uh, you would open our eyes so that we might see you for who you are and we might follow you. And Father, we thank you for the power of your Son and for his willingness to receive sinners like us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for this sacred word which you have inspired and which you will now apply to manifest the glory of Jesus Christ to each of us here. And so I want to pray for my brothers and sisters that you will nourish and feed them and strengthen their faith and and clear their vision uh, uh, so that they see the cross uh, and the Lord Jesus for who, for what, and who they are. And we pray also uh, for the non-Christians who are here this morning that, that in your great grace and by your omnipotent uh, uh, mercy, you would cause them to be born again, born of the Spirit this morning uh, as the Word is set before them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the kingdom of heaven is not like any other kingdom uh, because it's a sinner-ransoming kingdom. And the kingdom of heaven is like that because that's what the king of heaven is like. You know, Holy Week is the story of the the loveliest, the wisest, the highest, uh, the strongest, the bravest heart to ever beat on planet earth and that heart belongs to Jesus Christ. Uh, our text is just you know it's just full of the beauty of the heart of Jesus and it's it's being set before us that beauty of his heart is is just pulsing I think in this passage and it's being set before us uh, this morning so we will behold his beautiful heart and we'll believe Uh, him this morning. What we see when we look at him through the lens of this text is that we, we see that he is going into Jerusalem for a remarkable purpose. He's going into Jerusalem with his eyes totally open, and his eyes are totally open to what's going to happen to him, and he's still going into Jerusalem because his heart is totally open to what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And it's really not so much what's going to happen to him as what he is going to Jerusalem to accomplish. That's what our text makes clear. He's entering Jerusalem with a heart fixed on the most remarkable purpose, which is as a king to make a ransom for rebels against his rule. Now, that is just mind-boggling. But even more mind-boggling than that purpose is how he is going to accomplish it. And he tells us in the passage, he's going to make a ransom for rebels against his rule by giving his life in the place of rebels. That's the shocking announcement at the heart of the gospel. That the king of heaven gives himself as the ransom for rebels against the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning, what I want to think about with you through our text are three, three themes uh, that our text uh, reveals to us. The first is the ransomer, and that actually is a word. I looked it up this week. I said to Maria, "I said, you know, what my first heading is the ransomer." She looked at me. She said, "That's not a word. That just shakes me to my core when somebody says that." It is a word. So we're going to look first at the ransomer, and that's Jesus. We're going to look at his heart. Then we're going to look at the ransom he makes and how he describes it. And then we're going to think about what are the implications for our lives. If, if what Jesus goes into Jerusalem to do, if what we're uh, celebrating and, and commemorating this week during Holy Week is that the Son of God incarnate goes into Jerusalem with his eyes and heart open to ransom sinners then what kind of transformation of our lives should that accomplish? And they're big ones. So let's think first about the ransomer, And that's really, we're going to do that mainly through the lens of the parable in verses 1 through 16. Now, I've already pointed out that the chapter division... Uh, between uh, Matthew 19 and and Matthew 20 makes it harder to see something very important, and that is that the parable Jesus tells in verses 1 through 16 is the dramatic conclusion to his exchange with the disciples that began after the rich young man leaves Jesus near the end of chapter 19. You know, Peter asks a question on behalf of the 12 and verse 27, which is where we started, and, and look, look again at what Peter says. Because what's just happened is they've seen the, the rich young man be called by Jesus and then uh, walk away from the call. And then Jesus tells them it's, it's going to be easier, right, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples hear that, and they go, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter, again, representing all 12 of the disciples, that doesn't appear to sink in very deeply for Peter. Which, again, is nothing new. And so Peter says this, See, we, in sharp contrast to the rich young ruler, We have left everything and followed you. We've done what he didn't and was unwilling to do. So what then will we have? Translation. Jesus, if you were willing to promise that Johnny-come-lately rich guy treasures in heaven for following you, then what can we expect? We who followed you first and have followed you the longest and have already left the most... Now, what we all need to admit is that's exactly how we think, too. Because that's the way the rest of our lives work. That's the way the kingdom of men works. Jesus responds to the question, with much more kindness than it deserves. And he assures the disciples that they will receive a massively disproportionate reward from him. They'll receive a hundredfold. They'll be put in authority over the 12 tribes in some sense, right? They'll be enthroned. And then he says, you're going to receive a hundredfold, which if my math is correct is a 10,000% return and they're going to inherit eternal life to top it off. But then he ends with this this surprising note of reversal in verse 30, which sounds like a warning. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, what does he mean by that? He begins to explain it in the parable. You see, what happens is Jesus needs, there's a pastoral need here, Jesus needs to correct his disciples' vision. They have a vision problem, and their vision problem is twofold. They don't see themselves accurately, and they don't see Jesus accurately. And so Jesus needs to correct their vision. But it's the way that he goes about it that is so fascinating because here's how he corrects. See, what what happens is the disciples, and, and Peter is their representative, the disciples think that their first and longest and maybe in some ways hardest service puts them at the front of the line in the kingdom. And so Jesus, in order to correct, this is what's so mean. So he's got to correct that, but how he does it is so striking because what he does is he corrects their vision of their service to him by correcting their vision of his service for them. It illustrates a truth that is at the very heart of the gospel, which is, the heart, what you believe about your master's heart, you're going to hear this again later in the sermon, what you believe about your master's heart determines the kind of heart you will have as a servant. What you believe about your master's heart is going to shape and form and set the trajectory for your own heart as a servant. And so that's why Jesus has to speak to them about ultimately, about the nature of his service for them before they can ever understand uh, rightly how to think about their service to him. So he tells the parable, and it's a very familiar parable. And in this parable, you'll notice the master hires five different groups of laborers. Did you notice that? He goes out first. Uh, well, I just want you to notice, notice two things. I want you to notice that the master's initiative. And then I want you to, and then we're going to think about what's distinctive about the first group. So first, I want you to notice the same pattern in all five groups of labors. You notice that it's the master who seeks the labors. Did you see that? In every case, it's not the master who's staying at his vineyard waiting for these laborers to come and present themselves to him as candidates for employment. In every one of the five cases, it's the master who is the seeker and who is the finder of the laborers. A hundred percent of the laborers enter this owner's vineyard by his generosity, and exactly 0% enter through their own merit. The starting point in the story of the five groups of laborers is identical. That starting point is sheer grace, because they're all day laborers. You've got to see this. Those are day laborers, which means that they literally live hand to mouth, even the first group. And so unless they're hired, they don't eat. And this master is so generous. He has a lot of work that needs to be done. He has a vineyard. And in every case, he's the one who seeks out the needy. He's the one who goes and finds them. He comes to them. So that's the master's initiative. You see that common theme. But notice as well the first group's distinctive. Yes, they uh, enter the vineyard first and they work the longest, but really the most telling uh, thing about them, the most telling distinctive about them is that the term they're the only group for which the terms of their service are negotiated. Do you see that? The master... And the first group of laborers who are hired first thing in the morning, they talk about the wages. But all the other four groups, something different happens. Look at verse 4. He comes uh, in the third hour, which is now about 9 o'clock in the morning. He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, now notice, he doesn't say, and I'll give you a denarius too. He doesn't, ta- he doesn't tell them what he's going to give them. Notice, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Anybody else? go to work for your, on the basis of your boss's assurance that he or she will give you whatever is right. You see what's remarkable is that there are no boundaries that are set. The first group, on the other hand, is, has predetermined boundaries on both sides of the relationship. You give us a denarius, we're going to give you a day's work. But the other four groups, there are no boundaries. You see, the other four groups, what they do is they entrust themselves and their welfare completely to the master's heart. You see that? They trust that whatever is right, he will give them. Their confidence is in the master's character. They are willing to labor for the master who has sought them out and found them out simply on the basis of his assurance in verse 4 that whatever is right, I will give you. Now, why in the world would they do that? Well, I'll tell you why I think they do it. I think they're willing to put so much trust in the master's heart because he has already proven his heart to them by seeking them and finding them. He's already come to them. What kind of master is this? What kind of master is this? You know, if you weren't in the first hired group, you know know why you were hired first? You would probably think that you were hired first because you were the most capable or the most competent. That's probably what you would think. But the longer the day went on, and the longer it was that you weren't hired, you were going to be more acutely aware of the fact that to even be in the service of that master is an astonishing grace. That he came and sought you. That it doesn't have anything to do with your merit. That it is gift, 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 all the way around. From beginning to end. You see, he sought and found them. He put them into his service long after others had passed them by. And they realize, they realize that to be in this master's vineyard, in the service of such a master, is a gift of amazing grace. And that's what binds the four groups together. Do you notice? that when the wages are paid at the end of the day, it's only the first group that complains. I mean, I sort of think if I was a lawyer and I was representing, right, at least the the ones who were hired in the third hour, I might at least rise to make a petition. But, you know, you see the other four groups, they're, they're perfectly content for the 11th hour hirees to receive exactly what they receive. You see, the way they think about themselves is different from the way that the first group thinks about themselves. Friends, of course, Jesus' threshold point is clear and it carries a bite for the disciples because what he's saying to them is hey, you guys got to be careful because you're sounding, your hearts are sounding a lot like, uncomfortably like that first group. You're sounding uh, like like you have that same attitude that, that you think that because I called you first, that you are first. You think that because you've worked the longest, that you deserve more, that you somehow still have in your brain and in the way you think about our relationship, this idea of your merit, that somehow even your obedience rendered to me puts you ahead of the others. You see, it's very interesting what happens here what bookends this parable because at the front end, you have Peter's question, the disciples' question about the the disciples' relative standing uh, as being those who have followed Jesus first and longest, their relative standing vis-a-vis the world, right? Other people who come in outside the 12, are we as the 12 going to get greater rewards than any others who will come after us, such as the rich young man? But then later on, In the conversation, the exchange between uh, the house of Zebedee, uh, James and John's mother, and James and John and Jesus, do you notice that there, even there, the same idea of merit and jockeying is present? Because what's happening there is the mother of Zebedee and the sons of Zebedee are jockeying for position, superior position, not within the twelve. We want to be ahead of the other ten. It's not enough to be part of the 12. It's not enough to be part uh, in your vineyard at all with all the other people who will follow you. We want to be uh, the two top, even within the 12. And it's the same sentiment. It's the same infection of merit. Now, what is Jesus going to do here? Is he just scolding them? Certainly he's correcting them, but is he just doing it by scolding No. He's not just scolding them by comparing them to the first group. What he's really doing is trying to rescue them by contrasting himself with the first group of laborers. Because he knows that what you believe about your master's heart will determine and set the shape and the trajectory for your heart as a servant. See, what Je- I think the reason Jesus tells this parable Ultimately, yes, he's going to correct his disciples, but it's how he does it. And how he does it is he's setting himself up as the main contrast with the first group of laborers. I want you to think about this, how unlike the first group of laborers the Lord Jesus is. His was a labor of the greatest love, right? The first group resents the master. The first group resents their co laborers But Jesus' labors, friends, as the ransomer, was, they, they were all a labor of love, of the greatest love. Love to his father. He loves his master and love for his people. He was happy Jesus was happy to go to the work, to enter his father's vineyard, to respond to his call. Friends, we need to see that and rejoice in it this week. That Jesus did not go to Jerusalem reluctantly. That the son did not empty himself of the prerogatives of his deity with a glum face. He didn't take on the form of human flesh reluctantly. Or with hesitation, he did it for the joy set before him. He was happy to go to the work. He was happy to enter his father's vineyard when he knew that he was going to work there alone. That he was the only one qualified to do the work that had to be done, that he was the only one capable of doing it. And he knew that his work would increasingly isolate him. The further he got into his work, the more he would be isolated and ultimately even isolated from the father he loved on the cross when he was made sin and the father turned his face away, judging Jesus in the place of his people. And yet Jesus was still happy to go to the work. He woke up, every day when Jesus woke up, He knew, my friends, that he was preparing for the hardest of all work. He was happy to bear the burden of the day and the scorching heat of his Father's judgment because what happened to Jesus on the cross, what Good Friday is about is the judgment day was brought by God's grace into the present from the future and poured out on the Son of God. That was Jesus' work. And he was happy to go to it for his people. His eyes were fully open when he entered Jerusalem because his heart was fully open. And friends, unlike the first group of laborers, Jesus was happy that others would benefit from his work. It makes Jesus happy. That though he was the only one to do the work, he's not the only one to benefit from it. Do you know that about your king? He's happy for you to enter into the fruits of his labor. He is happy, my non-Christian friends, to invite and call you into the enjoyment eternally of all the benefits of his work. He is the one who is willing to work for you even though you were unwilling to live for him. Friends, the work of Jesus Christ is so full and is offered so freely and so completely that if you will come, if you will prefer Jesus to your sins, then all the benefits of Jesus' labor will be yours. That's the gospel. He doesn't resent sinners being made equal with him as sons of God. That first group is so angry. Remember their charge in verse 12? You have made them equal with us. You know what? Jesus rejoices when when sinners, by virtue of his work, are enabled to call upon the Father, his Father as their Father. That makes Jesus happy. He doesn't begrudge His Father's generosity. He doesn't begrudge His Father's plan that He, the Holy One, would be made equal with sinners on the cross. That He would not only take on their flesh, but then be so identified with their sin that He would be judged in their place as their substitute. Jesus did not begrudge that adversity. He did not begrudge that part of the Father's plan that was a necessary step in order for the Father to open up the floodgates of his generosity to sinners to make them sons and daughters of God. Jesus didn't begrudge that, my friends. He was happy in his work and he was happy that you and I would benefit from it. So the ransomer, what a heart. What a heart he has for us. Now let's think about the ransom that he makes and how he describes it. And that's uh, really in, in three places, uh, verses 17 through 19, and then verses 22 and 28. And what, what Jesus does in our passage is he first describes the, the act of uh, the, making the ransom, and then he gives us the interpretation of it. And it's very important to see that he does both. Because if you think just pastorally about what it was like to be one of his disciples, I mean, they've been with him for three years. They're very loyal to him. They love him. And they're now headed for Jerusalem. And when they enter Jerusalem, in very short order, a whole bunch of shocking things are going to happen to him. And Jesus does not, even though he has already predicted his death twice so far, Explicitly in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16 and chapter 17. Just like us, right? It doesn't really sink in. I mean, can any of us say that it has really completely sunk in? I can't. I think what it means to be a Christian, at least in part, is that for the rest of your life, you are a student of the cross, and to think otherwise is to not, not understand the cross at all. What should be happening in the Christian life is that the magnitude of what God has accomplished, well, what God did, what God did uh, through Jesus at the cross, as well as the magnitude, our sense of the magnitude of all the blessings that flow from the cross and its implications, if that isn't growing in our lives, then we're not growing. So when we draw our last breath on this side of glory, we should be more deeply persuaded of the need for the cross than we were at the beginning of our Christian lives, and we ought to be more in awe and wonder of all the blessings that have flowed to us from Calvary than we were at the beginning of the Christian life. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. We see that just modeled again and again and again in his dealings with the disciples and also in all the epistles of the apostles, which is hard to say quickly. And so notice, first, the description that Jesus gives. It's very graphic, it's very specific. And what's happening is that the greater level of detail increases the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem. So it gets more specific and more graphic. If you compare the other two predictions of his death from chapter 16 and chapter 17, you'll see additional detail here. And in verses 18 and 19 you'll notice that Jesus describes the destiny that awaits him in terms of seven very distinct events. Look at verse 7 or excuse me verse 18. So we're going to go up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be number 1 delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. In other words, he's going to be betrayed into the hands of the Jewish leaders. What are they going to do to him? and they will condemn him to death. Number two, so Jesus, think about this. Jesus is the one true Israelite. He's going to be betrayed, delivered over into the hands of the leaders of his people. He is the cornerstone appointed by God. They are the builders, and they're going to reject him. And they're not just going to reject him. They're not just going to say, we don't believe you. We don't follow you. They're going to want to extinguish him. They're going to bring him into a trial and they are going to judicially condemn him. Next, then they're going to conspire with the Romans, their mortal enemies. Now, think about that. They're going to take him and deliver him over to the Romans. Because they can't execute him. And then, he's going to be mocked. Have you ever been mocked to your face? As an adult... This is God, incarnate, the emperor of the universe. And with eyes wide open, he is moving toward a place where he is going to be mocked by creatures and stay his hand against them. And then he's going to be flogged, whipped. And then number six, he's going to be crucified, the worst of all deaths, vicious cruelty. And then he'll be raised on the third day. This feels like understatement after that list of the first six. You see, what Jesus is describing is that when he goes into Jerusalem, he is going to suffer terribly. He is going to suffer unjustly. He is going to be rejected by everyone. And he is going to be the victim of tremendous cruelty. And and so and, and what's going to happen is he's not just going to die. It's, it's remarkable enough that he dies. Right? That the Lord of life is going to place himself under the wages of sin. That just should blow our minds. But it's how he dies condemned by the judgment of men, and he dies, even though he's going to die the most heroic death that, that, was, ever, that, that was ever died. I don't, that's not a sentence, but you know what I mean. The most heroic death a man has ever died. It's going to look to the naked eye like the most unheroic death. It's going to look utterly anti-heroic, although he is the only faithful one the only faithful one, the only faithful Israelite, he's going to die in such a way and be rejected that he's going to appear to be the most unfaithful. He's going to be tried and condemned as a blasphemer when in reality he's the one true faithful worshiper of God. That's an amazing fate that awaits him that he has his eyes open to. Now, what's the meaning of that death? Why? What does that accomplish? And that's where he uh, leads us into the interpretation that he gives us in two parts. First, he in verse 28, he refers to his death as a ransom. And secondly, in verse 22, he refers to it as a cup. And by referring to it as a cup, he helps us understand what the meaning of the ransom is. But let's look first at this whole idea of a ransom. First, uh, he says that in verse 28. So we're going to do it in reverse order. Look at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what's, what's a ransom? A ransom is a payment made in order to secure the release of somebody who's held in bondage or in captivity. It's the payment of an outside party that is made, a compensation that is made to secure the release of somebody from captivity. And Jesus is saying that he, as the Son of Man, is going to give his life as a ransom. So this is utterly key, my friends, to see what Jesus is placing in the hands of his disciples. He is giving his disciples the interpretive key to all the events he just described are going to befall him in verses 18 and 19. He is saying to his disciples, it's it's going to look when they condemn me to death. It's going to look when they deliver me over to the chief priests and scribes. It's going to look when they, de- when they deliver me over to the Romans, when they flog me, when they mock me, when they spit upon me, and when they crucify me. It's going to look to you like they are taking my life, but I want you to know that I am giving it. They are not taking it from me. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. What happens in Jerusalem is by my design. Which of course means, friends, that everything we see on the cross is about the willingness of Jesus Christ to enter the darkest, hardest places for the sake of his people. The cross is not strictly necessary for the universe to continue in existence. It is only... Necessary if God resolves to save sinners, which He has. So everything Jesus accomplishes is because He's willing to give His life as a ransom for many. Friends, this morning I was reading in 1 Timothy 2. It, if you turn with me there. Um, and I didn't write, I'm sorry, I didn't write down the page in your pew Bible that this is from, I'm sorry. So it's right, First Timothy is right before? Second Timothy. Okay, how's that for a help? So look at how Paul uh, thinks about Jesus, uh, well, the, the Father and Jesus in, uh, in chapter two, starting at verse, uh, verse three. Now, now, what I want you to see is that then in verse 28 of Matthew 20, Jesus says, hey, we're gonna go into Jerusalem, And I I, I'm telling you that I'm going to give, I will give my life as a ransom for many. But now, as Paul writes First Timothy, he's on the other side of the give the promised giving of Jesus, and he looks back and celebrates the implications that Jesus did in fact keep that promise to give his life a ransom for many. And he has made that ransom. So notice, starting up at verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Uh, uh, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, God the Father's heart is that all people will be saved. That's what he desires. God's heart is that wide. There is no category type of person that God does not desire for the gospel to rescue And so what does he do in furtherance of that desire and fulfillment of that desire? Verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. God appoints a mediator. Out of the Father's heart comes this design. Men didn't ask for a mediator between them and God. God designed the mediator. God provided the mediator. And the mediator is the man Christ Jesus, the God-man Christ Jesus, whom God sends into the world whom God gives to the world because he so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his only begotten son. And then what does the son do when he enters the world? Verse six, who gave himself as a ransom for all. You see, that's the wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus gave his life to secure the liberation from captivity eternally for everyone who will trust in him. He personally ransomed his people with his own blood. Friend, do you know yourself? That says something about us. It says that we need to be ransomed. Do you know that about yourself, friends? That you, outside of Christ, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is still true about you. If you are a Christian this morning, but it doesn't have to continue to be, by the way. All you have to do is turn from your sin and turn toward Christ and say, let me enter into your some for me. If you are a Christian this morning, this was true about you. You had to be ransomed. It wasn't you didn't earn your way out of your captivity. Impossible. Can't be done. You can't make the payment to secure your liberty. Only God can make that payment for you. And he did. In Jesus Christ, do you know yourself as somebody who needed to be ransomed, and do you know Jesus as a ransomer? You know, this, for me, I just cannot help but think about how, the you know, converted as a 19-year-old, so, so opposed to God, so violently opposed to any assertion that there was somebody to, whose, to whom my knee should bow, besides what I saw in the mirror. And it was when I saw the kindness of Jesus Christ that my hardness broke. I pray it'll be the same for you. So Jesus describes this ransom, but but who is the ransom paid to? Oh, that's so important. So many people say, oh, he had to pay the devil. Garbage! Devil has no rights in the universe. No rights. So that's not who the ransom is paid to. So we need to think about this. Jesus, you notice, describes in verse 22, describes his death as a cup, right? When he's talking to uh, James and John. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, right after this, after uh, James and John say what they should not, And they say what they should not because they're disciples. Hello. Right? I mean, just like us. They say we are able. They have no idea what they're saying. And he does say to them, you will drink my cup. But don't confuse that. He's saying they're going to suffer. But he is not saying that their suffering is going to be like his. James is going to be martyred in Acts 12. And John is going to be sent into exile. But Jesus, when he describes his death as a cup, that he's going to have to drink. He's tapping into a very deep vein of Old Testament uh, teaching. Because in uh, the Old Testament, at least 15 times, it, it could be more, my count may be off, at least 15 times, the image of the cup is used to describe or to depict God's judgment, God's wrath against the sins of the wicked. And it's a very interesting image. I want you to look with me at one of them. It's from Psalm 75. And if you turn in your pew Bible, To page 487. So Psalm 75. Starting at verse 6. Page 487. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. God is the judge of the earth. Now, what is it going to look like for him to execute justice? Look at this imagery. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. That means, you know, the thing about wine is good wine takes time. And this is a picture of the slowness of anger that God has that defines his character, but never confuse the slowness of his anger for the absence of it. And so there's this cup of wine, it's foaming wine, it's well mixed, it's ready to be drunk. And notice, he dispenses it, and he pours out from it. He is going to personally dispense it. Who's he going to give it to? And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's inescapable. God is going to personally dispense it. And when Jesus describes, friends, when Jesus describes his death as a cup in verse 22, he is saying that... I have been appointed by God and I receive that mission and accept that mission and my mission is to be the one who in the place of the wicked is going to drain the cup of God's wrath. The Lord my Father is going to put it in my hand and I am personally going to transfer the contents of that cup into myself. That's what it means for him to drink the cup. Everything that's in the cup is now going to be taken ownership of by Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying that he is the one who has come to bear the wrath of God in the place of his people. The ransom is made by Jesus, the Son of God, to God. That ransom is made so that the people of Christ, everyone who will trust in Jesus, will be sheltered from the wrath of God by what the Son of God will do. It is God's satisfying himself by substituting himself in the place of sinners. On the cross, the Father... Friends, this is amazing. What happens on Good Friday is that on the cross, the Father pays out the wages... The Father pays out the wages that you and I have earned by virtue of our sin, and Jesus receives those wages, those wages of His wrath on our behalf. That's the ransom Jesus makes for us, my friends. And then finally, let's think about implications for our lives. What does it mean to be the ransomed? How does being ransomed transform a life? What should lives that have been ransomed by Jesus Christ look and feel like? And I have three things that I'd like to hit. First, it, it should look like we've already been ransomed. I spent a lot of time not thinking about that point, and then it hit me yesterday afternoon. It's like, that's actually the most important point. It mean, what I mean by that, I mean, I'm not just, I'm not just trying to be... Uh, trying to be clever here. I really do believe that the first implication of being ransomed is that we're to live as people who already have been ransomed, not as people who deeply believe at the deepest level of their hearts that we still need to be ransomed. Oh, friends, this has implications for Christians and non-Christians. So, so my non-Christian friends, if you'll just hang on for a second. Let me address my Christian brothers and sisters first about this. Brothers and sisters, there's no, what it means that Jesus made this ransom is that there is no more payment to be made for any of your sins. Impossible for your life to add anything to the ransom already made. Impossible for your life to subtract anything. From the ransom that has already been made. And it was made 2,000 years ago. Willingly, completely. When Jesus said, It is finished, he meant it was finished. When the Father raised him from the dead, the Father said, Amen. Impossible for you or I to add anything to that offering. Impossible for us to subtract anything from it. Friends, when Jesus gave his life as a ransom on the cross, he accomplished your eternal ransom in full. There are no secrets from your past that are going to pop up and undo what Jesus accomplished. Because there are no secrets from Jesus Christ. There are no mistakes that you're going to make in the future that have the power to overturn the ransom that Jesus paid at Calvary and that the Father accepted wholeheartedly on your behalf. Do you believe that? When Jesus gave his life on the cross, you know what he did? He shattered the doors of the dungeon. He shattered them, and he cut into the bars of iron like the psalmist talks about. So friends, your address, my brothers and sisters, your address is not the dungeon anymore. Yes, you were captive, but emphasis on were. If you're in Christ, Jesus entered that dungeon, shattered the doors of bronze that kept you Uh, imprisoned by your sin. Cut the bars of iron asunder. So guess how you're supposed to live? Get out of the dungeon. Don't live like you're still in the dungeon that Jesus shattered 2,000 years ago. Live as somebody who's been freed. And use your freedom to tell the truth about Jesus. What a great redeemer he is. And then my non-Christian friends, when Jesus... Christ calls you to himself this morning. Make sure you understand this. He is not calling you to come and do. He is calling you to come and rest in what he has done for you. He has paid the ransom. Yes, yes, of course. And the next point will be that, you know, when you have been ransomed, you change the way you live. But changing the way you live is not how you get ransomed. You've got to get that order right. The, these things are always, they're inseparable, but there's an order. And it begins with Jesus' ransoming of you. Because what it means, think about how Jesus describes himself. He's the Son of man who came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To know Jesus, you means that you have let him serve you. Oh my goodness. He gave himself fully. He gave himself willingly. And so there is no category of human person. There is no human history that, f- f- from which that ransom is excluded. There is no person for whom that ransom is not simultaneously available and eternally sufficient. So lay hold of it, my friends. Lay hold of him. Secondly... To be ransomed means that increasingly we realize we are purchased people, purchased by Jesus, and that that is fully so, and we are glad to be purchased by him. Friends, Jesus Christ paid for us in full. He drew no boundaries around what he was willing to give for you. No boundaries around his life. There were no fences. There was no line that he said, I'll go this far and no farther. He was not like the first group of laborers. He entrusted himself completely to the Father. He poured himself out completely for you. And guess what that means our relationship with him should be like? That means that there are no boundaries in our lives. That we draw no boundary that we set up around any part of our life that we say Jesus can go this far and no further, none of those boundaries are legitimate. And guess what? We all have them. There, we all have areas in our lives where we are not letting Jesus work out the implications of his reign and his rule. And the wisest, safest thing to do is to tear those things down. So exactly what you're thinking about right now is what you should be working on. and to be glad about that. What a master. What a master. What we believe about the heart of our master determines the kind of heart we'll have as his servants. And this text shows us that the heart our master has has no boundaries for the extent of his kindness or goodness that he's going to shower on us. So how could we imagine that it would ever be for our good that we would draw boundaries around what we were willing to give up or to give to him. So we're ransomed people, we're purchased people, and finally we're humbled people. And really this is, I want to end by thinking about uh, what happens with the house of Zebedee and uh, the other disciples in verses 20 through 28. Again, the honesty and transparency of the Bible about uh, things that, even the silliest, uh, most ridiculous things, and really the most offensive things, that it's all together, even within the circle of the disciples, is one of the things, the Bible's honesty about this is one of the things that persuades me that the Bible is true. Because you notice what happens, I mean, friends, so much error about the cross can exist and persist in the vicinity of the cross. Jesus has just... Look them in the eye, and he has just explained everything that's going to happen to him. And he's he's explained the meaning of his death and what is happening among the disciples. They are jockeying for position. They all have a superiority complex. And this is so much the natural way of their thinking that it's not just limited to John and James. You notice that the ten get really ticked off. Well, why do they get indignant? They got indignant because James and John beat them to the punch. They all are wrong. All 12 together. Now, friends, think about that. Think about what that means. These men were with Jesus constantly. They are living in the shadow of the cross. They are sitting under his teaching on a daily basis, and they have not had the implications of the cross sink down deeply into their lives. How much more do we need to resolve to be people who are students of the cross? Jesus totally, the cross, Jesus' ransoming ministry completely redefines what greatness actually is. The world, uh, Lydia and I were in Washington, D.C., this week, uh, looking at schools. And, you know, the world, I was just struck again by how the world's definition of greatness is, come to me, look at me. It's centripetal, okay? Come to the center. Draw all the attention to me. But Jesus is telling uh, his disciples that the real definition of greatness is centrifugal. It goes away from the center. It gives itself away. It doesn't add. It subtracts from itself. He's saying that one who's going to be great is going to be your servant. The one who would be first is going to be your slave. Now, friends, to the degree that that is sinking in for us, we're going to change the way we relate to one another. We're not going to be locked in competition with one another. The elevation of my neighbor the elevation of my brother or my sister is not going to be a zero-sum game with my own dignity. It's not going to have to be at my expense. It's going to elevate my neighbor. Okay, elevating my neighbor is going to elevate me. I'm going to be happy to serve my neighbor, unlike James and John. Because what, what, what would make you do that? What would make you go against the grain of the world's definition of greatness and authority? What would make you do that? Why would you? That seems suicidal. Well, I'll tell you what would turn you into that kind of servant seeing the heart of your master. And the heart of the master was a downward, it had a downward trajectory. It had a downward trajectory that kept going down that was willing to go beneath us. It's not simply that Jesus had to ransom us that should humble us, although that should humble us. But it's the way he did it. By going beneath us. Going beneath us. Friends, when you see that, about yourself, and you see that about Jesus, then that's going to change the kind of servant you are to him, and it's going to change the kind of servant you are to one another. Because a ransomed people will be a humbled people. Let's pray. Lord, every single one of these lessons, we are amateurs in. And we need so much help We are just like those two blind men at the end of the chapter. We turn to you because unless our eyes are opened to who you are and what you've done, uh, we will not follow the real you. And so we ask that you would have mercy on us and restore our sight so we would see you for who you are and so we could see ourselves for who you have made us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.